That's all I have for announcements. If you have your Bibles, you can grab them now. You can open them with me to Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8. Today we are going to read about the next four plagues in this story. And we are going to see our God, Yahweh, the man of war, continue to wage war on all the false gods in this world. Let's begin by reading in verse, or chapter 8, verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let them go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. The land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let Pharaoh, only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction 
between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord said a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. The magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. I don't know about you, but when I am reading these accounts of the plagues, I I try to put myself in the Egyptian shoes or in the Egyptian sandals, you might say, in order to try to feel what they must have felt. What would Pharaoh and all the Egyptians be feeling both physically and emotionally during this time? What what would have been going on within them? When when it comes to, to the gnats and to the flies, do you know what I think of? I think of Ocean City, New Jersey, with a westerly wind. Seriously. My family and I love the beach. Every September we go to Ocean City for two whole weeks and we literally have zero complaints for the entire time except when there is a westerly wind. Because when the wind is blowing from the west, it blows all of the flies towards the water. And if it's a light wind, you might be able to bear it. But if it is strong at all, the amount of flies is overwhelming. You think, I'm just going to sit here and I'll be okay. But they start landing on you by the dozens. And you cover yourselves with blankets and, and you try to cover every bit of skin. But they just keep landing all over you. Look down, there are dozens of them. Inevitably, we end up going back in order just to play games at the house. When it comes to the death of the livestock, do you know what I think of? I think of the comforts and conveniences of everyday life being suddenly taken away from us. Livestock was used for transportation in that day. Livestock was used in people's employment in the fields. Livestock was part of people's personal wealth. This plague is like all of us suddenly having all of our cars break down, most of our bank accounts being drained half full, and suddenly losing many of our jobs. That's what death of the livestock would have been like. At the Shorey home, I I feel like God has sent a plague of death to all of our expensive equipment and appliances lately. Over the last three months, we've had four major repairs on our vehicles. We've had a shower break, a dryer repair, a dishwasher repair, all in the last three months. At this point, I'm praying for the plague of hail so that I can get the insurance to pay for a new roof. That would be ideal. When it comes to the boils, well, first of all, that, that word alone, boils. 
Who wants to deal with a boil? It's a really unpleasant word. A boil sounds like a horrible experience for for anyone. The closest I can think of or the closest I can get to putting myself into the Egyptian experience is to think back to when I had cancer 20 years ago. I was going through severe chemotherapy, aggressive chemotherapy, and it beat my body down. I was so weak, I had no immune system, and the result was that I got these these sores, these lesions in my mouth and all the way down my throat, big, big sores that just would not be healed. They could not be healed. No medicine would touch them. I've never felt pain like that, and I, I feel like that must be a little bit close to what the Egyptians were feeling with these boils all over their body. This is some of what I imagine when I think about what they must have felt physically. But listen, it would have been so much more than just that. I feel like these four plagues that we are studying today, the the gnats and the flies and the livestock and the boils, I feel like they would have been some of the most disconcerting and unnerving plagues that they had to deal with. Because these things don't just demonstrate power, but they also demonstrate sovereign control and, and purpose from God. God is demonstrating here that he can do these sorts of things whenever and however he wants. See, the Egyptians would often see a natural event or a natural occurrence, and they would attribute it back to their gods retroactively. Oh, look at that earthquake, or look at that flood. That must be this God getting angry with us. We should satisfy him. But that's not what's happening here, is it? Moses is not seeing a natural event happen and then look back retroactively and say, that's Yahweh speaking to you today. No, God is claiming these things through Moses before they even happen. He's demonstrating his absolute control over all things. And in that control, he's just further demonstrating his absolute supremacy over every other God, over every other thing that you and I seek to put our trust in in this world. And as we see together this whole idea this morning, God is not just wanting us to be amazed by his power. He doesn't just want us to be impressed. No, he wants us to see his supremacy and to respond by by devoting our entire lives to him in humility and in obedience. The main idea for our sermon this morning is this. God's supremacy demands our obedience and worship. God's supremacy just demands our obedience and worship. And we have three points. Number one, his greater glory. Number two, his unyielding demand. And number three, our obedience and worship. Let's begin with the first point. Point number one, his greater glory. Last week as we began to study these ten plagues, we we saw together that, that what is happening here is not just 10 displays of God's power in order to impress and amaze. Now what we see here is that God is actively and personally judging sin. He's judging the sin of Pharaoh and Egypt and the false gods that they worshipped. And each of these 10 plagues is a specific demonstration of judgment against the Egyptian gods and against the Egyptians' false belief. Yahweh, our God, is systematically dismantling the belief system of Egypt. In our Bibles, in Numbers chapter 33, verse 4, when he is speaking about these events in Egypt, Moses says this. He says, On their gods also the Lord executed judgment. This is what he's doing. In this story, God is flexing. He is taking these false gods into the boxing ring and he is giving them a sound beating. 
Last week, it was the the gods of the Nile that he beat up. Today, it is the the weak gods of the land. Let's look at these things very quickly. The the plague of gnats. It's a very interesting plague. The the Hebrew word for gnats here, it it might mean gnats. It might mean sand flies or lice or some other small bug. We don't exactly know. But whatever the bug is here, it seems that the Egyptian god that is being attacked through this plague is not seen in the bug itself, but rather in the dust of the ground that was made into the bug. Moses strikes the ground and the dust becomes bugs. The Egyptians had a god named Geb or or Jeb. He was the god over the soil of Egypt. He was the god over the ground. And so in using the ground to bring about this extremely unpleasant plague, Yahweh is proving himself as as stronger than yet another of the 80 deities worshipped in Egypt. The the ground, it's a source of strength, right? The the ground is our foundation. It's what we we stand on. It's what produces our our food, our, our land not just in Egypt, but often in this world, is a sacred thing. And so, so God is undermining one of the most foundational sources of strength for the Egyptians. He, he's saying, the very ground that you stand on belongs to me. The false God that you worship for the ground, I have control of it. That's what he's doing in this moment. It, it must make us think of what are our foundations? What are we standing on that are not God? That's the purpose of this. How about the plague of flies? Well, there are several options of what this plague was intended to communicate. It, it could be that there weren't, these weren't house flies like you and I think of, but, but rather that that word could be translated as flying beetles or the scarab fly. And, and each of those things had, had deities that they represented. Right? The Egyptians actually had many gods who were depicted as flying beetles. The giant beetle, apparently, they believed, rolled the sun through the sky from dawn until dusk, much like a beetle would roll a pile of dung. That's actually what they believed. They worshipped this beetle god as being an emblem of the sun and of power. All depicted as, as flying beetles. Or Phil Riken suggests that this plague was actually a direct attack on Beelzebub, whose name literally means Lord of the Flies. And Beelzebub was the protector guardian for many of the Egyptians. So we, we don't know exactly what God is being addressed here, but it's very clear that this was an attack on one or many of the deities. Just as the plague against the livestock was as well. The, the plague against the livestock it would have been catastrophic for the Egyptian belief system. It would have been catastrophic not just for their economy, which it was. It would have been, it would have been catastrophic for their souls. There were many Egyptian gods that were depicted as livestock. The, the goddess Isis, who is depicted with cow horns on her head. The god bull, Apis. They apparently kept a live bull in the temple to resemble the embodiment of this god. Many of these gods, many of the Egyptian gods were depicted as livestock, and they all had to do with, with sexuality and fertility and, and power and control. Cows and bulls were probably the most common image among Egyptian gods. There's actually a reason why when the Israelites are at Mount Sinai and they want to create an idol, there's a reason they created a golden calf because that imagery was so common to them in Israel. And so you can imagine 
the effect of all the livestock in the field suddenly dying out by command of this God called Yahweh. What a, what a statement of his power over so many of their false gods. And then there was the, the plague of boils. No, they did not have a God of boils. That's weird. I'm not sure why they would have that. But, but this was a powerful demonstration of Yahweh over all the Egyptian gods that they believed brought them physical safety and physical well-being. Right? Many of the, the gods were believed to be deities who provided physical care and comfort and healing. And so to have boils, something that was so painful, it might have even been leprosy, to have it happen to your own physical bodies, it would have, it would have gutted their confidence in the gods that they trusted for physical safety. It says that they could not even stand before Pharaoh because of how bad the boils were. So we see in each of these things that Yahweh, our God today, the one true and living God, is demonstrating his absolute power over every other false god or thing that you and I put our hope and trust in. He's wanting to show his supremacy over every false god in our lives. And it's not just the power that he's demonstrating. Again, it's the specificity and direction. Did you notice that Moses is able to say when these things will happen and when they will stop? He's not retroactively choosing to claim certain things as God's power. No, he's saying God will do this at this time, and it happens at that time. There's no other explanation for Pharaoh but to believe that this is what God is doing. God is also able to direct where the plagues go. Did you notice that with the plague of flies, God does not allow any swarms of flies to be in Goshen, which is where the Israelites lived. It's not even like it was a faraway land. It was right there. But God said, no, flies will not go into Goshen. What kind of powerful God can determine where flies fly and where they don't fly? Or, or how about the plague of livestock? It says that none of the Israelite livestock died. Not one. Only the Egyptian livestock that were out in the field died, just as he said. What, what kind of God has the sovereign control to say this far and no farther to flies that fly or to a plague killing livestock? I'll tell you what kind of God. Our kind of God. The kind of God who is real and who has always existed, who is not a figment of our imagination or a conjuring up of our idolatry. The kind of God who speaks and this world exists. That's the sort of God who can do this. And when we understand that this God that we worship here this morning, that he is absolutely sovereign, friends, we should be able to understand why in his word to Pharaoh and to his people, he demands absolute obedience. A God who is supreme, the God who is the supreme being is a God who knows what is right and wrong. He, he is the standard for life. He is the determining factor. And so it should be that we look to him for guidance and for wisdom for how to live life in this world. But the problem is that like Pharaoh and like all of the Egyptians, we forget that he is absolutely supreme. 
You and I, in our sin and in our pride, we go grow comfortable with him and we begin to think that, that we are the standard for life, right? Isn't that true here in America? We believe that we determine right and wrong and this has led us again and again to rebel against this God who is supreme above all things. But no matter how much we do that, that does not change the fact that Yahweh is the standard of right and wrong. And so it should not surprise us that he is unyielding in his demand to be obeyed and to be worshipped. And that brings us to our second point. Point number two, his unyielding demand. So throughout this text, God calls Pharaoh and the Egyptians to obey. And so in chapter 8, verse 19, it seems like the magicians are beginning to believe. They say, this is the finger of God. we don't know exactly what that means. We don't know if they sincerely believed that it was Yahweh or if they just were impressed and said, man, the gods are at work in these things. But either way, the primary character in the story, Pharaoh, he does not believe. His heart is hard. Pharaoh is observing all that God is doing. He's, he's testing it. In chapter 9, he, he sends people to see if the Israelite livestock truly had not died. He, he wants to know how specific, how precise is God's control and power. How, how powerful is he really? Pharaoh's observing all of this. He's, he's testing it. And no matter what God does, Pharaoh refuses to let God's people go. Church, this demonstrates the hardness of our hearts apart from the gospel. Apart from the regenerating work of the Spirit, apart from God's grace in our lives, we too would ignore the power of God like Pharaoh. We too would worship empty things that have no power. And and isn't it interesting that that even though though Pharaoh's heart remains hard, he he tries to to bargain with God and with Moses. He's observing God's superior power, and he's beginning to sense that that he should do what he says, but but he doesn't want to fully submit his life to him. And so in in chapter 8, verses 25 to 32, he says, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, go, sacrifice to your God, listen, within the land. Pharaoh tries to obey God, but not fully obey God. He says, it's okay, fine, go and worship your God, but but do it within the land of Egypt. Do it here. You don't need to leave Egypt in order to worship him. Do it from here. Go ahead. He's trying to compromise with Yahweh. And friends, isn't that often what we do before we're Christians? And isn't that often what we do even when we are Christians? We know that Yahweh deserves our praise and our full allegiance. We know that he demands and deserves our worship, but we try to to combine our old life with our new life, don't we? we? We try to say, okay, I'll follow God, but I'll do it in my old way. I can worship God. I don't need to leave my sin behind. I'll worship God with my addiction. Or I'll worship my God with my anger and control issues. Or I'll worship God, but I'll, I'll do it with my gods of comfort and leisure and self-pleasure. We, we see that he's there. We, we know that he deserves our full worship, but we try to, to mingle him with the gods of this earth. We say, okay, 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 I will worship God, but I'm not going to leave my bondage behind. 
We become so enslaved to our old self that the thought of leaving it behind is too painful for us. We try to have God and the land of Egypt at once. God and pornography. God and sex with our boyfriend and girlfriend. God and materialism. God and our political agenda. We we think that we can combine him with these gods, that we can worship him in a foreign land, but he'll have none of it. He's unyielding in his demand. He will not let Pharaoh get away with it. Throughout our text, and we'll see it next week as well, we see God being unyielding in his demand. He will set his people fully free. In his holiness, he's not okay with being worshipped in the land of Egypt. So Moses says, no, Pharaoh, we need to go out. We need to leave this place. We need to worship him apart from Egypt. Friends, the God of our Bibles, He demands exclusive rights to your heart. He refuses to share His rightful place in your life. Because He is absolutely supreme, to to worship Him and to worship something less is to not worship Him at all. A supreme God deserves supreme worship. Friends, that, that should make sense to us today. It makes sense in our relational world. If, if we claim to love someone more than anyone else in life, if you say that you love your wife or your husband more than any other person on this planet, then your spouse should expect you to leave other relationships behind, right? No, no sincere marriage is going to be okay with a husband or wife choosing to remain with another person. If I, if I say I love Ashley Danielle more than anyone else, it would make no sense for me to say, hey, I love you, I'm with you, I'm just going to live with this other person over here as well. I'm just going to cultivate this other romantic relationship. No, it makes no sense. That would be adultery. And that is why God so often uses adulterous language when speaking of idolatry in our hearts. The Israelites need to leave their old lives behind. They need to leave Egypt. Anything else is adultery. A supreme God deserves and demands our supreme affections. Anything but our supreme affections is idolatrous worship. He will not share his glory with another. This is his unyielding demand. He wants exclusive rights to your heart. This is why he says to Pharaoh, this is why he says to all of the false gods of this world, this is why he says to your sinful heart today, let my people go. Not just a little bit. Not just for a little while. Not just until you figure out how to enjoy your sin in a a more culturally acceptable way. No, he said, let my people go. He wants them to be free. This is what he wants for you. It's what he wants for me. He wants absolute obedience to him because absolute obedience leads to absolute freedom from bondage. He will not settle for anything less. He wants to be free, so he demands that we leave our old lives and our old sin behind. This is who our God is, and he will not give a foot or an inch in his demand of us. But the problem is that we can't, right? We can't worship him like we ought. We can't obey him like he demands. We are a broken people. We have idolatrous hearts. We worship false gods. We worship ourselves. Even if we wanted to leave our old selves behind, we simply cannot do it. We simply cannot fully obey him as he demands. And if God does not help us, 
The hand of God's judgment as seen in chapter 9 will fall on us just like it is falling on Pharaoh and on Egypt. We need help. Which brings us to our third point. Point number three. Our obedience and worship. Verse 20. Let my people go that they may serve me. Chapter 9, verse 1, let my people go that they may serve me and worship me. This is God's command to Pharaoh. This is His command to all of us. To serve Him, to follow Him, to obey Him, to worship Him. Church, what we're going to see throughout the book of Exodus is that God delivers us from one bondage, a bad bondage, But he does so not so that you can just live free from all outside control. No, he leads us out of one bad bondage into a good, glorious bondage. Into being slaves of Christ. We are freed from bondage in order to experience the joyful demands of his grace. We are freed in order to serve and in order to belong in a new and better place. But friends... None of us serve the Lord like we should. The Israelites did not serve him as they should when they were in Egypt. They certainly did not serve him like they should when they got out of Egypt. So the issue, the enemy of God's people, it's not just Pharaoh in Egypt. No, it is who and what Pharaoh represents, which is sin and death, sin even in our own hearts. We're not holy. We're not obedient. We do not serve as we ought. And so just as it says in chapter 9 that the hand of the Lord is coming against Pharaoh, so we as Pharaohs ourselves, the hand of the Lord is coming against us. He is supreme in holiness and he is supreme in justice. He must punish sin. The same judgment that came against Pharaoh will come against anyone who has sinned against this holy God. And that includes every one of us in this room. Friend, in your sin, in your pride, in your self-sufficiency, the hand of God is coming against you apart from Christ. When it comes to God's judgment against sin, on your own, none of us are living in the land of Goshen safe from his judgment. None of us are going to be spared from the swarm of God's wrath. In ourselves, we have nothing to stop God's wrath from coming against us. In chapter 9, verse 4, when God makes a distinction between the livestock of Egypt and the livestock of Israel, listen, apart from God's grace, there's no distinction between us and the rest of humanity as there was in that text. In fact, Paul explicitly says in Romans chapter 3, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short. No one does good, not even one. As much as we want there to be a distinction like in this text, there is no distinction. We, We are as guilty before God as Pharaoh was. We are equally deserving of God's judgment. But listen, God has done something that we could not do. We are in as much trouble as Pharaoh The the swarm of God's wrath is coming upon us. It will eat us alive. We are doomed to perish but God. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, saved us by his grace. But God, though this swarm of wrath is coming upon us, he gives us a Goshen. He gives us Jesus to to hide ourselves in so that the swarm of God's wrath approaches and then goes around those who are found in him. And this is entirely the work of our God, not because of us. How many of us have tried to create our own Goshens? Oh, God's wrath is coming. Let me try to do a lot of good works and obey him in this way. And maybe my righteousness will keep the swarm of God's wrath at bay. It will fail every time. We need another. We need Jesus Christ who came and who obeyed in the ways that we could not obey. And then was unjustly killed on our behalf and then rose triumphant from the grave. We need him by faith. We need to say, yes, he is my Goshen. I hide myself in Jesus so that the wrath, the swarm of God's fury passes by us and we remain untouched. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But for those who he has given a new heart to believe in his son, there is now a glorious distinction. They are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. They are now protected from the Father's wrath. They are now given a new life. They are made new creations in Jesus so that they might live a life pleasing to Him. This does not mean that you'll be perfect. This does not mean that you will never sin again. It means that in uh, being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, your position before God has forever changed. He will not hold your sin against you. He looks on you as holy even as his son was holy because Jesus became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And therefore we are able to pursue him with obedience and worship. Imperfect though it will be along the way, our orientation has changed. We are no longer living for ourselves. We are no longer building our own morality. We are secure in Him. And so we get to choose to to, to worship Him with our lives and our obedience and our purity and our, our humility. We get to say, Lord, You have done what I could never do. And so now I live for You. And now, Lord, I believe that You're bringing me to that day when I will be forever free from this sin, forever free from the stain of my impurity, forever free from shame when I will see You face to face. He has given us a Goshen to be in, and His wrath has passed by us. And so this is why we worship Him with our lives. May we never tire of singing His praise. This is our great God. He is supreme above all others, and He has done great things for us. Amen? Please stand with me this morning.